0: One Sacred Pause with Jessica Winderl. Hello yogis! Welcome back to another episode of the One Sacred Pause podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Winderl, and I'm just so happy that you're here joining, tuning in, spending time listening to these real and raw conversations that are completely organic unscripted unedited and just getting to enjoy conversations on topics related to spirituality and yoga and ayurveda and meditation and breathwork and all that good stuff so i'd also like to just let everybody know if you want to check out the atman yoga website www.atmanyogaschool.com we have an updated schedule Um, Of course, because of COVID and shutdowns in Oslo and around Norway, a lot of our programs have been rescheduled for the fall. So we have stacked the schedule. We have lots of weekend trainings, so kind of a little bit lower commitment, a couple of Restore and Yoga Nidra trainings. We have one Ayurveda immersion, which we're excited about. And then if you are interested in a bigger, more in-depth training, then our 200-hour Vinyasa and Ayurveda teacher training is starting in Oslo in August in Norwegian. So this is the first time we're running this training completely in the Norwegian language, all the texts, all the materials, with the exception of uh, some of the philosophy and anatomy, which will be in English, but most of it's in Norwegian. So if you have been wanting to take a teacher training with the Atman Yoga School, but have been a little unsure because it was in English, then check this out. Send us an email at hello at OtmanYogaschool.com learn more or just check the website okay this week's episode i am so excited it was such a pleasure to record and it's just oh my god we can talk forever about ayurveda and practices of inquiry so this week i am speaking with nidhi and she is a third generation ayurvedic practitioner so please enjoy Hello and welcome back to another episode of the One Sacred Pause podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Winderl, and today I am so thrilled to be speaking with a third generation Ayurvedic practitioner uh, in New York City currently. So welcome, Nidhi Pandaya.
1: Thank you, Jessica. It's such an honor to be here. I'm looking forward to this chat.
0: Good. Yeah, I'm just so excited and I have so many things I want to talk to you about, but Maybe a good place to start would be, I know you grew up, or did you grow up in India? I know I had seen you moved to the U.S.
1: Yes, I actually did grow up in India. I grew up in a city called Mumbai. Yeah, yeah, that's where I grew up.
0: Awesome. And you grew up in an
1: intergenerational household? That is correct, yeah. 14 members living under one roof, uh, four rooms at best, wow. four bedrooms, 14 people.
0: What, and then how old were you when you came to the U.S.?
1: I was about twenty-three when I came to the U.S. So I spent majority of my, you know, my initial years, the formative years, were all in uh, in India with my joint family.
0: Mm. What was that like living up living in a household with so many members? And I imagine there were probably a lot of pros and also some cons.
1: So Jessica, the you know, so my grandfather was an Ayurvedic practitioner and practically a saint. Mm -hmm. And he led the family silently with this concept of uh, inspire, don't impose. Mm -hmm. And his life was, it's just amazing. I feel like that has been my biggest learning ground is the family that I was born in and raised in. Because we saw people... Everybody is born with a different nature, different body. And there was very little imposition in my family, but a lot of inspiration. And of course, this was primarily led by my grandfather, who silently probably never asked anyone to do anything, but led a life by example that always inspired us. Growing up with so many people, so there were seven children and seven adults in one household. And the synergy that we were able to create, right, Uh, the harmony and the flow that existed, as well as the insights that you get living with people of so many different personalities, characteristics, behaviors, you realize how unique we are all to the world. And you also realize that it is our, it is our job or flow means to be able to navigate through those nuances, through people's idiosyncrasies, their their natural tendencies. And once you learn to do that, you know, differentiate the big from small, understand what's an event, understand what is a relationship, you just come out so much fuller, so much happier. I can proudly say that it was a very successfully led family. Hmm. I've never heard voices raised I've never, there was no petty conversation to be able to survive with 14 people under one roof. You really have to have a large heart and have your own path. Uh, And luckily we saw that. So we were able to emulate it in whichever manner we could. And uh, it's the best. Uh, I'm still still reaping the benefits around 20 years later from what I had growing up. That sounds phenomenal. And it sounds like
0: just the description of the love and the compassion and the understanding that I'm hearing you talk about is like, it's warming my heart. (laughs) And I can totally imagine how that can absolutely shape the direction of your life, not just in terms of how you view the world, but also in terms of how you view yourself and your place in that world. And having that support from your family um, I think is something that's really special, and not everybody has. So, when did you, when you decided to leave and come here? How did your family respond to that?
1: So, to be honest with you, Jessica, it was not a decision, right? It was mm. I, I, I had an arranged marriage, mm. and and I moved to the U.S. because uh, the husband was from here. He was born and raised here. Right, So it was just a very natural transition, and uh, that's just how the, you know, it was still a cultural, like culturally bound family, and that's what you do, that, you know, women, uh, the girls in the family reach a certain age, either you find your own suitor or the family matches you up, and then you move wherever wherever your husband lives, Mm. and that's really what brought me to the U.S. about 18, 19 years ago.
0: Oh, I love, I didn't know that about your story. And I think that's so cool because this is sort of a a strange little tangent, but actually I think it's really important and it's kind of a direction I'd like to take our conversation to in terms of the intersection between modernity and traditionalism within both the Indian culture, but also through the lens of yoga and Ayurveda. And I'm sure there was some Jyotish and and birth chart matching that was involved with your uh, arranged marriage. And I found it so cool because now Netflix is starting to shift their programming. And they're having more programs um, that are centered around uh, people in India and Indian culture. And of course, a lot of them are reality TV shows. <laughs> and So mm-hmm. we have to, of course, take that with a grain of salt. But of but I think that's really cool that now, at least here in the West and here in America, we're seeing um, at least some exposure, whether it's good, bad, or or indifferent. I don't know. I can't make a decision on that. But Um, or an opinion on that. But I think that's really an interesting thing to a lot of us in America, where we're not used to that. We're not used to intergenerational homes. We're not used to um, arranged marriages. We're not used to checking birth charts before we make big decisions. Do you remember what that process was like when you were going through the matchmaking process? Were you involved in that? Or was that more your parents handling it?
1: So, you know, like you said, you said it very well. I felt like even my family was on the cusp of modernity and traditionalism. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, it's confusing, right? It's a transition and all transitions are confusing because you hold on a little bit to what you're leaving. And then you're excited about a little what, a little bit about what you're getting to, but you're somewhere in between. And um, so while... There was a lot of freedom of thought in my family. Growing up, I thought that was natural, you know, liberal thinking in terms of worldviews and basic values. I thought that was a normal thing. We were allowed to think, feel, have opinions on subjects. And I felt that was that was normal and it was great now. When I look back, when it came to getting married, we were still traditional. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was because traditions make such a big part of an Indian family, right? And little traditions, little value systems that, for example, there was one big value system in my family was we were not allowed to say mine. I I was not allowed to say, this is my book, or this was my mom, or this was my room. That word mine was just never spoken. It was never mine. Everything was ours. Hmm. And then, uh, so it's a big, plus, there's certain festivals which have deeper sentiments than others. So, the concept of the arranged marriages that in this whole system that has been created means so much to you, then you want to be able to move to a family which can offer somewhat of that because it does make a really big part of, you, of who you are. It, it You know, you really, it becomes such an important environment for you to exist in. So that's the whole concept of an arranged marriage, at least the way my family looked at it. It was not about caste, it was not about anything else, religion, it was just about this. Um, The process was that my parents were actually a little bit, uh, my family was a little bit more liberal. So it actually feels like a dating app where they introduce you to a bunch of guys. You can talk to them, meet them as many times as you want. I in fact came to the US uh, a couple of times just to see if I liked the life here. And uh, and then you make the decision. The gap was that I felt like I was too young. I was Mm -hmm. extremely young and I really hadn't lived the life beyond, lived life beyond the cushion of what my family offered me. When you live with so many people, the one thing I can tell you for sure, Jessica, is what family community does for you. It becomes a cushion. Anything you experience, the shock is absorbed. Whether you've lost a loved one, whether you're sick, whether you're in the middle of a pandemic, the middle, the minute you have people, it's, they're shock absorbers. So the impact of everything in life, there was just, the impact is really reduced. And um, so everything felt very rosy and cozy, right? So you don't know the life. So you don't know life on the other side. Mm-hmm. And um, I couldn't imagine that life in the U.S. would be so different and lonely with less numbers. So I, that that's something that I really couldn't understand for myself. And I think neither could my family. But the process was Yes, there was introductions, there was meetings, there was multiple meetings, you could take a few months. Birth charts were definitely matched. But it was more, it was definitely very different from what you see on Indian matchmaking, right? <laughs> I think that is an exaggerated version of what happens. It's a little extreme version. Neither is, it, neither is it a strategic proposition, at least not for us, where we're like, oh, you know what, like, is this a business partnership? It wasn't looked at like that. I felt like when I saw the show Indian matchmaking, it was presented as like a partnership, a strategic partnership. You know, where will this person, and while you want each person to enhance your life, I think it's many levels, whether you want the person to enhance you as a human being or enhance the the material stuff in your life, what you have going on outside. So for my family, it was definitely if you feel like this person can enhance you as a human being, help you on your journey of growth, um, then you take this path. It didn't feel harsh it felt very natural, but there was time pressure, Jessica, when you're 23 was considered like, okay, you're at a good age to get married. So that's the one thing that I will tell you, there was a lot of time pressure. And I didn't know what life is on the other side when you don't have that cushion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I also want to tell you, I've actually I'm in the middle of a separation. So even that has been quite a journey. Uh, but it's been a wonderful journey. It's, ex- it's beautiful. And I'm very, very grateful for it.
0: That's, as you're speaking, I'm having a lot of different thoughts about, um, first of all, I myself I have an, am an immigrant. Um, I moved to Norway five years ago from the U.S. And something that I think is really under um, appreciated is how difficult that is to leave a family unit, And whether it's the 14 or 13 people you were living with or around often, I um, having that structure, that comfort, that coziness, like you described. And then all of a sudden, it's exciting. You're on your own, you're starting this new adventure, you're starting this new life, this new family. Um, I had moved here to be with my husband as well. And we don't expect how lonely that path can be. And One of the things I found for myself, um, especially during the pandemic, I had a baby in July and thank you. Yeah. And you know, my family couldn't travel to be here and we lived in the country and it was very isolating um, because nobody could visit and nobody could come and help. And of course that's a very special time in, in a woman's life anyways, but it really hit me when we don't have community to lean on, when we are experiencing times of challenge or upset or discomfort, um, I have found through experience that it's a massive drain on our spirit. And for those of us who are on a spiritual path and incorporating uh, self-inquiry into a big part of who we are and what we do, I think it's, it's. of course, we could bring in karma. There's a lot of other things that are at play there, but I think it's a very interesting Um, opportunity to observe how we respond when that safety net of community is gone, and it can be very painful, but I also think then it, for me, it reinforced, like, oh my gosh, my community is imperative. I need that support. I need that connection. I need that understanding. So what can I do? And that was sort of my takeaway, and so I'm wondering, when you moved to the U.S. and you got married, I'm sure you were probably invited into his family and his home and his community, but did you feel any of that disconnect, not just from leaving your family behind, but from all of a sudden finding yourself in this whole new situation and not knowing maybe, you know, who to call or where to get your hair cut, or it's a silly example, but things like that where all of a sudden you're just like out on this raft by yourself floating, <laughs>
1: Oh, Jessica, yes, I was. Right. And I see it wasn't, I didn't come here for love either. Right. It wasn't a lo- like I wasn't in love with the uh, with my ex-husband. At the same time, uh, his family was a diff- completely different structure. It was more because they had moved to the U.S. as immigrants. And you, you know, we've both been there, we understand. And especially back in the day when the world was not flat, it was all about survival. And it meant survival of the fittest and survival of the self. So the individualistic culture is created, you know, it becomes very individualistic because you have to look after yourself because you're, you know, there's no cushion. And so it was a completely different a completely different value system, completely different structure. So when I came here, uh, and he has a very small family, I did live with his parents, actually, for 14 years. So I lived in the house with his parents, but a complete, very different setup. So, and growing up, I had five sisters. I mean, we were five sisters, lots of friends, always had people. What was the most beautiful part about it was that after the initial, initial, like, loneliness and I, I, I say this sometimes to others when I looked in the mirror for the first time, I mean, of course, figuratively, I was like, who is this person? I've never met her before because I was just always surrounded by people. And I, I enjoyed it. I loved it, but I really hadn't met myself before. And then it took me a few years, right? Because when there's nobody else that you're interacting with so much, then you interact with yourself. You become even more introspective. And um, after a few years, I was like, nice to meet you, you know? Uh, and, uh, so it really took me off on a on a big path i was always introspective i was always curious but i had not really gone into the depths of my own mind and body and understood myself that way and it, it happened for the lack of choice what i also learned in my family my family is in, is is ridiculously optimistic like as as mine too Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing, any, there's always a silver lining and the glass is always half full or maybe full. It's just not even half full. So we had, so I don't, I didn't have the mindset of really, you know, really going down on myself. I was always like, okay, there's something, there's something good about this. And I, I was very, very quickly able to get onto that boat about really building up my life and understanding myself. But yes, the beginning was just like, space like it was Mm. just black empty dark space and then then you you're scared when you're in a dark room you're first scared but then you feel like I have space to create Mm. and that's what happened once I got over the initial fear of that darkness I was like this is I can create my own light and I'm very grateful for what happened
0: that's so beautiful and one of the reasons that I had reached out to you to be a guest on my podcast which I'm so happy you were willing to do that is Um, I've been following you on Instagram for a while and I love how you're really making Ayurveda accessible for kind of the modern person, the modern individual. And I think that's something that's so important because like yoga, Ayurveda can oftentimes seem, even though it's a it's a very physical science, it can seem esoteric. It can seem like, oh my gosh, where do I start? There's all these rules with food and and what I'm supposed to be doing and what type of person am I, what's my composition? And so I like how you break it down and you're like, okay, here are, you know, 10 things to that you should be doing if you're X, Y, and Z or Um, And so that kind of circles me back to my earlier comment about the intersection between the the modern individual and the more traditional material or the traditional art and science of Ayurveda. And so I'm wondering what you're seeing from your very unique position, having been raised in a very traditional household, and then now as an entrepreneur in kind of this um, more modern landscape of Ayurveda, I think there's a few people within kind of the 30s, 40s age range, who are putting out books on Ayurveda, who are talking about Ayurveda for the modern yogi, um, as opposed to some of our teachers who are now much, much older. What have you seen kind of shift or change within the general Ayurvedic landscape in terms of maybe a, a younger, fresher, more modern approach being taken to how this information is shared, how it's being taught? Have you seen any
1: changes? So Jessica, it's all over the place to be very honest with you, and I understand Ayurveda completely differently because it's not about traditionalism and it's not about modernism. Ayurveda, and I can explain why it is a timeless and a universal science. So Ayurveda will remain Ayurveda whether it's going to be practiced in the BCs or it's going to be or if you practice it in four thousand AD, the principles don't change. Uh, what changes and what has confused us is the practices. Once you have a principle in place, the practices can change and evolve. And the Vedic textbooks provide for that change. It says, depending on the era, the practices will change. The practices and the prescriptions will change. The principles will stay intact. And I want to use the example of gravity. Gravity was gravity since the start of time and gravity will be gravity- Till, you know, till the earth exists. And, when, and you can use the gravity to bounce a ball and let it go back for the apple to fall down from the tree. So you can use the same principle that exists in the universe. We can't change the principles of the universe. These are basic universal principles and the way the world works. And depending on where we live, how we live, where we are in the evolution of mankind, those principles can be used to our lives today. And it's just the evolution of the principles. I don't even like to use the word, uh, the, you know, the, the phrase, some people say, modernizing Ayurveda. You don't, there's, mm. there's nothing to be modernized. Ayurveda is Ayurveda. You cannot modernize gravity. You can use different, you can have different uses of gravity. You can't modernize gravity. So, similarly, Ayurveda is all, all about life principles of how the body works within itself, how the body works in harmony with the universe. That's it, period the body and the mind. And uh, so I have seen a shift, but I, I still think there's a huge gap, Jessica, in really laying out the foundational principles and giving people the people the tools to evolve and change and adapt their lives to those principles. It's more a long list of do's and don'ts. It's all, it's about the turmeric and the ginger and the, the nasya. But the principles are kind of lost, even though we have younger writers writing about it. You know, it's not explained from the principle and the application point of view. Once you understand the principle and you're allowed to change the application, it provides for the for the change. And I feel like that gap is there. But I'm hopeful. I'm not bummed. I'm, I'm glad that it's all the, it's starting. The conversation is starting. It's only a matter of time before that gap will be filled. The, the, the true seeker who really wants to know will go and bridge the gap.
0: Mm. So then are you, would you put yourself then perhaps in the camp of more um, of the opinion that perhaps not enough respect is being paid to the tradition of Ayurveda?
1: Uh, You know, uh, Jessica, I would say that I don't, um, I don't, I I can't say it like that. I'll tell you Mm -hmm. why. Because when people begin to get curious about something, then they kind of dabble with whatever information they can find. And, you know, yes, a lot of people who are very passionate about Ayurveda can get a little sensitive about that. I see that in India. People are like, oh, Ayurveda is being abused. To me, it's not that. It's when you have initial curiosity about a subject, you experiment with it, you play with it, you you, you see what you can get. And you may not understand it fully, you know, and it's fine. I I think we have to be grateful about the fact that it's being talked about. Mm -hmm. And because the world is flat and everything is available online, Yes. The sad part is you can talk about, you know, while, while you're in the middle of your own play, you can talk about it and preach, you know, the playing and the preaching happens at the same time, which can, I think the consumer has to be more discerning today. Mm-hmm. I think just, it's just the reality of the world today that the consumer has to be more discerning. And I, I actually even tell my audiences, Jessica, I tell them, if I can not, do not believe something because I said that you do this. If I cannot take it through your logical brain, if I can't convince you through the principles you already know and have experienced in your life, please do not do, please do not do it. You have to put your own logical, intuitive, logical plus intuitive brain into this before you buy anything. So I think a lot of training needs to happen on the end of the consumer because we are in a generation where you can play and preach at the same time. And that's just how it is.
0: Oh, I agree 100% with what you're saying, both about um, as a teacher or a guide in your role. um, And for me, in my role as as training teachers of yoga, um, I say the exact same thing. Like, you can't just believe what I say, you have to critically analyze the information, what's the source, where is it coming from, who are your teachers. And then also, I I totally agree with your statement that the consumer or end user has to become more discerning. And that's one of my favorite things to teach also is how do we teach people to become discerning, Uh, especially in the West when many of the students or people who are new to these practices or dabbling in these practices or curious about them, they don't even know what questions to ask before they start becoming more discerning with the information. And I think that's a huge problem. And I've thought about this for years and years and years. How how can I, in my role as a guide and teacher help to train my students to be more discerning? And I don't have a strong answer for that. And I think, um, you know, we can only touch the students that we individually have contact with. So the greater community of people, um, we, we have no impact over how they do things or the information they choose to digest and, and then maybe even regurgitate back out. And I think this is also with Ayurveda an interesting um, dichotomy with social media where social media is such a huge part of our life. And the good parts of it, I think, are very similar to what you're doing. You're sharing accurate information about Ayurveda and, and people are responding to that. But then we also can perhaps see people who are using social media and very um, skim understandings of the principles of Ayurveda as a marketing tool, as they put some very shiny graphics and a beautiful photo, and maybe they're talking about uh, doing dances on TikTok. And um, I don't have a judgment about that, bad or good, other than I think it creates a problem. And it's a problem in how the information is being disseminated. And then that in turn leads to a problem with discernment because the average consumer then doesn't know, well, oh, there's this really pretty person doing this really cool marketing. So they look reputable. And that's been a problem in any context. You know, If somebody looks reputable, then it's easier for somebody to... Um, find truth in, in their content and what they're saying, whether or not that content is actually based in reality, or in, in the case of Ayurveda, any of the texts or um, traditional information. So I find it a really fascinating problem.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Jessica, the way I personally look at it is this, right? And I've just, by my own experience, like I realized when I was growing up, and I had a wonderful family, like I told you, but I still drank the Kool Aid in places I wanted to drink the Kool Aid, right? Like wherever mm-hmm. I had confusion, you buy, you believe somebody else, right? Because wherever there is confusion, and you know people say things in passing, but when you are vulnerable or you're imp- impressionable in those areas, you 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 kind of take them, you put them in your back pocket, and you use them throughout your life. And so I realized, right, through my journey, that at the end of the day, it is my own inner intelligence that I have to awaken, and It is understanding that the five senses give you only so much. All of the Vedic knowledge was written through the deep knowing. To be Mm -hmm. honest with you, Jessica, there is a deep knowing. We have a deep knowing of everything of everything literally like even conditions even disease conditions but we are so disconnected we are so engaged in the world outside that we cannot go back inside so I think the journey right like like Buddha's journey was that once you awaken that inner intelligence when we ask ourselves you know even when we are doing something we know somewhere inside that this is this does not make sense like am I? this doesn't feel right so I think to constantly develop your own inner intelligence and it has really served me Jessica it has really really served me that when you take an area and you remove the fear and the shame and the guilt and all the confusion from it, what's left is clarity. So even when you're consuming information to really tie that information in with our inner intelligence, that how does this feel from a place of peace? Does this resonate with me? And I think as, as mothers, you and me, as teachers, we can do this and spread this light in our community by constantly encouraging them, like you, like you do in your own work, to check in with themselves, mm. you know, to constantly go back. All of this knowledge was taught that, you know, the guru only lasts you so long. Your inner intelligence lasts you a lifetime. And I do believe that we are in a place even silently, like I see my grandfather, I, I've seen his life, you know, just by being, he inspired all of us. We were 14 mm-hmm. of us. We're all raising our children in a certain way. We're all taking this forward. So one person by by following that path can influence generations and generations. And I feel like, uh, I think that's great to make any more of a dent when we're such specks in this planet, you know, on this planet, is, is too much to ask for. I'd be asking for too much if I say, I, I, you know, it will be coming from a place of ego if I say mm-hmm. that, I, I, you know, I want to go and change the world. I can't, I can change myself and be grateful if anybody else is inspired from my journey. And, you know, that's fine. But the work is always to awaken that inner intelligence. It's just that for everything I feel. Mm.
0: What are you, um, I would love to hear more about how you are, Incorporating Ayurveda and yoga into how you're raising your children, I, I can already imagine it's just by uh, watching, by you doing your practices. But is there anything specific that comes to mind?
1: Yeah, Jessica, I I, I have raised my kids quite. Uh... Quite unconventionally, I have to say. I have a 13-year-old and I have an eight-year-old. And, uh, and my house is always a goofy, fun place. So the one thing is everything needs to be lighthearted. Mm. If you're evolving, it has to be light. The he- the heavy feeling, the overly, oh my God, like you have to do this and have to do that. To me, it's already against the, li- the lightness that it takes to rise. So that is one un- one principle. That being said, uh, Jessica, I uh, in terms of what I do in practical aspects, yes, there is a certain food, there is a certain lifestyle. I will not bring junk into the house. The girls know that all food is warm. They know that it's summer and we'll indulge in cold treats uh, once in a while, sometimes more, sometimes less. I uh, the, the mantra in my house is for food. It is I, because they're kids. I'm like if you only think about your your tongue you're going to have a bad tummy but if you only think about your tummy then you're going to have a you know just like a sad life like we we just we just joke around uh, that you know that it's okay you you know you indulge a little bit because you're supposed to at this age you know it's dharma artha kama moksha you're supposed to do all of it and uh, so there is indulgences my my rule is at home we only eat healthy we indulge when we go out, so they go to their friends' houses. No rules, do whatever you want. But at home, it's healthy, and we're home eighty percent of the time. Uh, but there's also the whole underlying, the whole underlying uh, value system. Or my, or my motto for raising the kids is: they have their own journey. Mm. I can only provide structure and safety. And uh, like, like the sunlight, like the water, that so far doesn't tug the plant. I give them sunlight and I'm supposed to give them water and they're supposed to grow. And, um, and actually tell my girl this, I'm so grateful. And I mean it, I'm so grateful to witness your journey. I am so Mm. glad for this opportunity that I see you go, you know, whatever happens. So I'm not a strict mother at all. Uh, there's a lot of conversation there's a lot of goofiness I'm truly inspired by my children I am so grateful for the kind of souls that I have Jessica Uh, so yeah in terms of Ayurveda everything is in place that we do meditations twice a day it's only five minutes my my daughter actually has her own meditation website that she's launching where because one day I caught her doing a guided meditation for her younger sister when she was five and you know so she created this whole like she made this and she was it was appropriate it was bang on where She's telling Sanjali, be grateful for your arms because you can do gymnastics and just, you know, so be grateful for your tongue. They allow you to taste the yummy muffins and be (laughs) great. You know, and it was very appropriate. And then it went from like these worldly experiences into like bigger experiences, that whole meditation. So um, meditation is a big part of our our, uh, life. And they also do breathing. They do alternate nostril breathing. We do journaling. So we do have a life, which I, I emotional resilience and self-awareness and self-discovery is really the name of the game and is the motto in my house. It's what we operate by. And then you look after your body using your foods and movement. Mm.
0: Oh, that sounds so wonderful. And for me, I just am so excited. You know, I'm very new to this motherhood game and my son just turned eight months old and it's yeah. for me, I waited until I was 39 to have a baby and, um, being able to, and I used a lot of Ayurvedic principles before I did a conscious conception and then Ayurveda during my pregnancy. And of course, after, and starting to, I have found that for myself already, there's been kind of this new surge of energy where I am like so excited, invigorated by my, my existing practices of yoga meditation and Ayurveda. And now I'm just like inspired even more because I'm like, Oh my gosh, I get to share this with my child. And, um, you know, my husband laughs. He's, he, he's on board with yoga and meditation and Ayurveda. But when I'll make a comment, like, no, I'm not going to eat that. That's dead food, or I'm not going to drink that. It's he'll like, I'll put something out on the counter to let it not Hmm. be cold. And he's like, puts it in the fridge. I'm like, don't put it in the fridge. He's like, you're so weird. (laughs) I know, I know. But, you know, I do Abhyanga massage on my baby every day and I chant to him or with him every day. And so slowly, you know, I think your point was very important too, about witnessing their journey and then giving them that space and that room to explore who they are and, and be who they are. And I love that, but I also really like the idea of showing by example. And Mm -hmm. I think I had read somewhere on your website or maybe on one of your Instagram posts that you watched your mom um, do her asana practice or yoga practice every day.
1: Every single day to the point that I was naive enough to think that that's what people do. They wake up, they brush their teeth and they practice yoga. I was just like, oh, people don't? People don't wake up and exercise. That's new one, you know. Yeah. So because that's what that's what everybody in my family did. So and yeah. I see that with my girls as well. I see my little one. She has created her own routine, and, uh, and 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 my my older one for sure. She's definitely much more conscious. But it's you're absolutely right because this is this is their first learning. You know, this is the first learning space. Everything they see in the house, and 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 more the things. When I go back to my childhood, I say the things that I really carried. But not things that were told to me. My natural nature is rebellion and questioning, um, you know. So I, nothing that was told to me is what I took with me. But anything that I saw and observed, I've carried forward with me. And so you know, I'm like, I keep going back to my own childhood to and to take lessons from it. And I'm like, you know, you just have to kind of create that atmosphere mm-hmm. and 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 do and do what you really believe in for yourself. So that they can really do what they believe they should be doing, and and you're absolutely right that leading by example, like my parents did um, and my family did, was really tremendously useful. And you know what, Jessica, we're all like that. It's funny, we're seven of us. We're all we're all doing the same thing. We're all into a path of uh, uh, you know just evolution, self awareness, uh, you know yoga, breath work, meditation. All of us. <laughs> so oh, it's really carried forward. That's amazing. So when you
0: now, I know you've been on your uh, more academic Ayurveda path for a while and and are diligently studying it. And I know you've spent a lot of time back in India specifically studying Ayurveda. Has your relationship with your grandfather changed since you were just kind of watching him and being inspired by him from a distance? And now that you're actually on this very specific journey, do you talk to him? more in depth about Ayurvedic practices, or is it still um, just kind of you're doing your thing and he's doing his thing?
1: So Jessica, my grandfather passed actually. Many oh, years. I'm sorry. No, that's okay.
0: Because I thought know, I heard you say, mention him. In the yes, you know,
1: you know, it's true. I do actually end up doing that a lot. Right, Jessica. It's really funny because I do, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, because his, um, so he passed in his mid nineties. And he had zero medical conditions. He he had a fracture. He was in his 90s, he was still going to hospitals, climbing stairs to see patients. And he did this five days a week in his like no cane, nothing. And he would be going to government municipal hospitals, which were not, which did not have elevators or even good stairs. So there was water and he slipped and he broke his bones. And and you know, more than one. And then he was in the bed for just physically he couldn't move. And he was in the bed for a few uh Couple of years and then he passed, uh, but I actually do connect with him every day. So my grand, my father was kind enough to write his biography, and uh, and I read it to the girls every night. We read a page from it, and every morning I connect with him, and I really do. It sounds it sounds crazy, and people who don't believe it don't believe it. But I feel like we're so connected, you know. I feel that. I feel his energy in my life all the time. So that's why sometimes I feel like I talk about him in the present tense, but he's still a very active part of our lives. And he lived such a long, fulfilling, fulfilled life that it doesn't, it doesn't even feel sad that his passing from this realm doesn't even feel sad.
0: Hmm. It was his time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. he, He completed the work he was here to do in this life. Absolutely. What about your other family members? Do you talk with them specifically about Ayurvedic practices or is it again, just kind of, they do their thing and you do your thing?
1: No, I do. I, I you know, that becomes a lot of the conversation now when I go mm-hmm. back and I go back a lot and uh, because, you know, also to communicate back in the day, we were just, we were nobody was intellectually curious. We were just raised like, okay, you know, you, there was hierarchy What you do what you're told everywhere at school, at home, it was like that we now the whole generation is very intellectual we are very curious and we want to know answers so we can pass this on to our future generations with with the backing with the uh, principles that it takes to carry this forward right with the understanding and so all of my family right they're always asking me so can you tell us why are we doing this and why are we doing that and things that we've been doing for years but um, I've been breaking it down for them and giving them the logic behind why we are doing whatever we are doing. So that's a lot of my conversation when we go back is Ayurveda, and uh, yeah, it's all it's all the spiritual talk when we go back mm. home. You know, understanding the human mind and nature, but everybody lives Ayurvedically and like that. But we're still exploring, and you can still continue for lifetimes to learn the science, and you're still not done.
0: <laughs> that's true. It's amazing. It's just it's that conundrum I always think of is like the more you know, the more you want to know.
1: And the studying doesn't happen outside always, right? I feel Mm -hmm. like there's limited studying that happens outside. I even teach this concepts to my girls when I'm like going five levels deep. If you've read one book, you want to squeeze five books worth out of it because you keep asking the question, go deeper into a concept. So I'm very big, Jessica, on minimizing ingestion and maximizing digestion.
0: Mm. that's actually um, a way in which I try to learn in which I try to teach my students is through uh, the use of repetition. So the idea of digging deep, rather than going wide, because if we try to Ingest a lot of information all at once, it's literally going to be in one ear and out the other. Um, I would say even more so in the West, where we're not raised with a lot of these concepts and the words are unfamiliar and the ideas of subtle body anatomy or energy is kind of hard to get on board with in some ways. And so for me, I'm like, okay, there's no way I'm gonna learn it all. So I'm just gonna pick some areas to really, really focus on. So similar to what you're saying, where it's like, okay. How can I get the most comprehension out of this material rather than just being like, oh yeah, I've read all the Vedas and I just thought that, that that it's like, of course, that's not really possible, but <laughs> you know, there are people who love to just skim material and then they say, oh sure, I've read the Odyssey and I've read this and that. And, and it's like, okay, you've read it, but do you understand it? There's a very big difference
1: Jessica, we are so on the same page. It's so funny. that's these are this is the these are the words I use that go deep, don't go wide. Yeah. this is exactly exactly what I use. So we are we are on the same page with this. absolutely. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm so with you,
0: yeah. and it's and I think too, you had used the word ego earlier in our conversation. And for me, also as a yogi, a big part of what I try to do from in my personal practice is, Um, how do I stay in a space of humility and understanding that actually I do know nothing. And I think I know something. And then I'm like, Oh no, I don't. And so for me, a lot of what I'm doing and what I've been doing, I've been practicing Ayurveda for about 15 years and is just, again, the experience experiential part of it. It's like, okay, what do I see working in my life? What do I see not working? And I laugh sometimes because Um, I think of myself 15 years ago and the person I am today and the things that for me are now second nature um, in terms of just my daily life, my daily routine and the yoga, meditation, Ayurvedic practices that I use. 15 years ago, I would have been like, you're nuts. And today I'm like, I can't, I can't exist if I'm not doing certain practices on a daily basis because it's so much a part of who I am at this point. And I know that moving forward, that's only gonna continue. But there's only so much we can do. So I really like the idea. And for me, it's like the sweet sacred idea of like, how how can I become very comfortable with what I'm able to access and digest rather than being like having this ego space of like, oh well, I should be learning more, I should be um a greater teacher, I should be a greater student, I should be blah, blah, blah. That just is, I think. Uh, setting ourselves, setting me up for disappointment. And so staying in that space of like, okay, I'm really humble. I don't really know much of anything, but what I do know is uh, this works for me because I've done it for a long period of time. And consistency is such an important part of all these practices too. When people are like, oh yeah, you know, I've done yoga for 20 years off and on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or I've tried, I've tried meditation off and on. It's like, okay, how did that go? Like, what, what was your experience then when we're yeah. not able to gather the information of sort of a long-term study, if you will, of how we interact with that information and those practices?
1: Absolutely, Jessica. And I feel somewhere inside when that happens, um, you yourself know when you take something on and you drop it and you take something on and drop it, you know, it, people know, right? Like, you know what? I know in my life when I've done that, it's, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't come from a good place and it affects your worth. And hopefully sooner or later, when you sort out baggage, then you're able to go back and access that place of grounding and steadiness where you can start a practice and hold on to it. So I feel like sometimes it starts with that acceleration and stop and acceleration and stop. And then hopefully you come to a point and you realize that you just want to be a steady Mm go.
0: Yeah, well, and I think the idea that the practice meets us where we are is probably yeah. one of the most powerful concepts that gives us permission. It gives us grace. It gives us the space to remove that that idea of the should, and instead just be this curious observer of our experience. And be like, hmm, okay, today was really rough. This week was really rough. This year was really rough. And all I can do is lay down on my mat in child's pose or all I can do. Like for me, two of my main non-negotiable practices are using my tongue scraper and Abhyanga. And um, when I was pregnant, I was very sick and everything made me sick, sleeping, shower, walking Mm -hmm. to the bathroom. (laughs) But (laughs) I I did my Abhyanga twice a day. And that Mm -hmm. was the only thing that made me feel just a little bit better. And I was like, okay, and I would feel bad. I would beat myself up a little bit because I was like, why can't I be doing more, especially in my first trimester? Mm -hmm. Why am I not doing more? Why am I not doing this? And I had all these plans and I had all these ideas and I would literally look myself in the mirror every single day and be like, Jessica, you're doing enough. You're doing enough. And that would help me so much too, to be like, oh, today, this is my practice. Just having that acceptance that I showed up. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: That can yeah.
1: go a long way too. Such a long way, Jessica. I just want to say one, one line here. My grandfather always talked about this word called Yatha Shakti. Yatha meaning according to. Shakti is your strength, not like the Shakti Shakti. It's yeah. like Shakti is strength. And he always says, do everything. It's a concept in the Jain philosophy that whatever you take on, do Yatha Shakti, according to what you are feeling, like you're capable of, according to your true, what whatever you can bring to the situation that day. and But be honest about your strength. So he says, the, the the journey is only about being honest about what you can do. But please honor how much you're able to do versus setting unrealistic goals. So even when we were all fasting at home, he would always say, do what you want to do. Do it, yatha shakti. Mm-hmm. You know? So just being honest to ourselves about what our body is capable of today and honoring that is also huge versus beating ourselves up every day.
0: And not to mention the concept of rest <laughs> of yeah. course you know in Ayurveda this is considered one of the keys to healing is giving ourselves time to just be and in the western world and maybe in India um, the the idea of doing more cramming it all in being this this master of multitasking is really valued there's a prize set on our it's ability essential. Our ability to just like extend our energy and burn ourselves out, and I think the big lesson is how do we reserve our energy? How do we keep um, ourselves in a space where we have more of those reserves in the in the tank, so to speak? And that's really really difficult because mentally we're not conditioned to do that, and physically. Um, that, of course, can then transition into a more tamasic state where we're just like, oh, okay, that means I can have a free ride to just eat Cheetos and watch Netflix.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Like, okay, well, that's yeah. not true rest.
1: Yes, that's not true rest. It just, yeah, true rest is about disengagement of senses. That's true rest. Is disengaging your senses, you know, whether you, and just going within. And it could just be, it could be laying on the couch and just, you know, really being introspective. It could be walking outside under the starry skies and truly being introspective. And I did a post yesterday which said, Jessica, when did Newton discover gravity? And when did Archimedes run out shouting Eureka? Because he he kind of made sense of the Archimedes principle as we know it today. But they were doing nothing, basically, right? He was right. chilling under a tree. And he was, uh, they, they were not in their labs. They were not sitting with these hundred papers and making graphs and diagrams. When you're doing nothing, your subconscious mind has the ability to process everything your conscious mind has taken and then spit out magic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we have to give ourselves the time. We're, we're even in our, in our, in our toilets, we have our phones, right? Yeah. So we are not giving ourselves the time to churn out that, that juice from our own psyche. And we got to give ourselves more time and rest, like you said.
0: Yeah. Oh, you put that so beautifully. Yeah. What, so now you're, you're moving forward and you have your business in New York and... Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing now? So do you see clients on an individual basis or are you running classes or workshops or how are you using Ayurveda from a more entrepreneurial standpoint?
1: Right. So I work with people. I I do a few different things, Jessica. I work with people over a period of six months on a full mind body transformation coaching program. It's six months and that has Ayurveda. It includes Eastern philosophy and modern psychology, but it's mainly Ayurveda, but it's a combination of all three. And uh, I love doing that. I see no more than three clients. I take no more than three new clients a month. Uh, That's my number. Uh, I I also blog actively on Instagram. I also, uh, I have my own course, uh, Jessica, which is a very unconventional course online, Ayurveda. So I would say it's about 80, 90 hours, but it will give you, I I promise it gives you more than a master's and it's Ayurveda taught through immersion, which means Ayurveda is taught through, is taught like your first language, you know, like a mother tongue, like you don't know and you've learned it. Here you are, you're just like hearing all these concepts and seeing all of this and you're like, oh, I've already learned this. I didn't know that I've learned it. So it's a non-academic approach to learning Ayurveda, uh, which is quite different from what's out there. The the concepts are presented very, very uniquely using analogies and metaphors and logic and just taking into account what, the audiences already know about themselves, taking that information, what we experience day to day and using that to learn Ayurveda. Uh, So I've I've truly enjoyed creating that course. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't market it actively. It's just, uh, it's there, uh, people sign up for it and they really truly enjoy it. But that is something where what I, I love teaching, it comes to me very naturally. So I have that course, which is available online. I do live sessions for the audiences once a month to answer their questions. I also teach at the Shakti school. I'm running, a cur- uh, currently I'm reading the texts, like Ayurvedic texts with the Shakti school students. I did Ashtang Rudayam first fi- like five important chapters. In April, we're doing the next five important chapters. After having done these two sessions, somebody can really say that I've studied Ayurveda from the scriptures. And um, we're going really into the depths. We are learning how to read between the lines. So I teach, I blog, I have a course online and I see clients. Uh, so these are a few things that I do. I am working on my book. Um, I don't know how long that's going to take. I'm going to let the universe decide the flow. But these are, these are all the things that I do.
0: Oh, that's awesome. You're busy.
1: <laughs> I am busy, but I pace myself out. where I don't have to do all five every day, you know. Yeah. I, have days, I have days reserved for stuff. So some things go, go slower than I'd like, but that's fine.
0: Yeah, but it's also, it's such important work. And I, it's interesting for me to observe, um, you know, and I'm coming from a very different background and experience than you, but seeing when I first started studying Ayurveda and um, I was under the impression that Ayurveda would be just almost just as um, popular as yoga, and so in the states when I was teaching both yoga and Ayurveda, and I would see and and I would talk about some of the basic Ayurvedic concepts or mentioning the doshas or how we we change our routines and our food for the seasons, and and people were kind of like, whoa, that's so cool! What is that? I've never heard of that. And and I feel like in the U.S., Ayurveda is like at least 10 in, in the general population, at least like 10 years behind what people think they know about yoga. And and then I moved to Norway and it's even more so um, because yoga is still so new in general in Norway. <laughs> yes. and, and I love that. It's a really exciting time to be here in Norway as a teacher. And more and more students are coming to yoga and they're coming to meditation and they're coming to breath work and they're like, this is blowing my mind, which is awesome because we're just conduits for the information anyways. Um, but when, but when these practices can have such a big impact and really help people manage stress and deal with the nature of being human, um, I think that's a really amazing thing to see happen. But what, what do you think about how popular Ayurveda is? Do you think it's, or actually, let me rephrase this. Do you see in your practice and your, um, offerings are more of the people coming from the East or from the West?
1: So I think uh, Jessica, somehow a lot of my clients are from the East. I'll yeah. be very honest with you. They are—they're uh, from the east. They may be living in the U.S. or in different parts of the world, but they are more likely because here they've heard all of this in in the east growing up. But they've not made sense of it. You know, they're like, "Oh, we've we've heard a few of these practices, but we don't we didn't know why we were doing this or why we were told." So they have. I think I'm I'm a few years ahead for you know. I mean, not I, I don't want to say ahead as in ahead, but I think the the Western audience needs a few years Mm -hmm. to come to that place because they're still so excited about the dosha quiz and they're so excited about the the turmeric and the practices. But for me, I'm certain that even though this is where the market lies, I I don't care about being in the market. Mm -hmm. I I care about presenting it authentically. Mm -hmm. I know the market will come to meet me it'll match up at some point, it'll catch up rather, it'll catch up to this point. But a lot of the Eastern audiences or the Eastern, uh, the, the, the Eastern uh, individual is more, is gravitating towards this more because they already have dappled with all these concepts but now they want to get deeper. And that's where, that's where my appeal comes in for that Eastern audience.
0: Mm, that's awesome, you're kind of like the next step once they have a general understanding of Ayurveda. Which is awesome. And one thing that I totally agree, I think you are going to be positioned really well in terms and I know this isn't your motivation, but I think too, we're modern yogis. And at some point when this is our life's work and and what we're called to do, we also have to find a way to keep the lights on and pay our bills and (laughs) live in the modern society.
1: Without shame. It's important. It's extremely important.
0: Absolutely. Would you maybe care your care to share your opinion about that? Like, um, because I know in the yoga world, in the Western, in the U.S., and I'll say the U.S., there are so many conversations about this, and and people saying, "Oh, you can't, you shouldn't be asking for money for your yoga services because yoga is an energetic exchange. We do it as a service, as an act of love," which I agree with. But I also think that people misunderstand the historical context of how the yogi or the guru survived when they were in India. And there was also an exchange of energy, goods, food, whatever. So, and they didn't have to worry about, you know, the housing so much because that was all provided in some way or another. What do you think as a modern, you and I are about the same age. What do you think as, and we're both mothers and we both, you know, have to live our lives. So from the more business practical side, what do you think about how, Yoga and spiritual practices can be um, offered in a way that there is a monetary exchange
1: oh, this for sure. I think it's it's very it's uh, misguided this con- concept that you're not supposed to provide for yourself. Uh, you know, like you said, back in the day, this the community was created as such that You know, you're you're kind of providing for everybody who's a part of the community. Everybody has a role and everybody has a way that they're provided for, whether the king is collecting his tax from everybody, whether people, you know, the farmers had their own system and the guru had his own system of being provided for. And everybody was a part of the society, of the community that way. Things have changed today. We have a different format of the world. We still want some of these practices and it's lovely, but The whole Vedic science talks about four goals of life, which is dharma, artha, kama, moksha. Mm -hmm. Dharma is your purpose on life. Kama is the sensory indulgence. Moksha is self-realization. But there is artha, which is how do you provide for yourself? You know, these four important goals of human life, which we all do to different degrees, depending on the phase we are in, depending on who we are as human beings. But you, it's important, even Maslow's hierarchy of need, right? Without food, mm-hmm. shelter and belonging, you cannot elevate in that. To be honest with you, spirituality is a luxury today. It's, it's only for, you can't be thinking about yoga if your kids have not, they don't have food to eat. You really can't be. So it's extremely important that, okay, I'm not going to practice asana if I'm struggling to give my kids milk in the morning, if I don't have money for that. It's extremely important for that exchange to keep happening. Unfortunately, money is our currency today mm-hmm. and you keep that. To have greed to change this information for yourself, uh, you know, to make money out of it, to manipulate others' vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. I don't think, I think that is what is not right. And I know, Jessica, you and I both come from a, from a pure place. We both come from a place of service mm-hmm. to ourselves as well as to everybody else. And I think it's, it's supposed to be guilt-free, it's, it's our place here. This is how we're able to sustain ourselves and continue to provide the service or be the medium that we are. So to me, this is completely guilt-free, extremely essential, and there should be no shame or no guilt around it. There should not even be a conversation.
0: Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that because this is such a hot topic in the yoga community. And I see on Facebook posts about this, if not daily, definitely weekly. And people are like, oh, I feel so uncomfortable asking for money. And I feel really not sure. And oh, I'm just going to charge $5 or whatever. And it's like, okay, you're energetically sharing what you value, your service and your experience and your energy and your education at. And um, I think that that's where the US in particular has gotten into a lot of trouble Um, where, and of course the US is this, very capitalistic based society where um, survival of the fittest, basically, whoever is out there, the loudest, the strongest, who's noiviest. the persistent, the noisiest absolutely. They're the one. the squeaky wheel gets the oil. They're the ones who can be successful on a monetary standpoint. And, and I don't begrudge anyone that, but I do think when it gets intertwined, especially with spiritual bypassing, then we're in very dangerous territory as teachers. Because we could be leading our students down a path that's, that's inauthentic or is, um, could even be harmful in some ways. And so having a very clear understanding of the relationship between money and spiritual practice and spiritual teaching is, I think, essential. And it's one of the topics I love to talk about because people get squirmy around money.
1: It's the relationship with money that's damaged, right, Jessica? Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with spirituality. Would you agree that it is more that people's own relationship? Oh, yeah, is providing oh, for themselves. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think, though, too, again, coming from the more the U.S. perspective of, um, you know, I mean, yoga. The last time they did a big survey, Yoga Alliance did a third party. Um, survey in 2016. And they had indicated at that point, so 2015, when the survey was probably really done, you know, the US, it's like a $16 billion industry. yoga is a $16 billion industry in the US. And now fast forward five years, I'm sure it's only grown. And so every marketing person in any company selling anything is like, Oh, if we slap the word yoga on it, it's going to sell if we put the picture of a yogi on it. And so I think that's where my um, inclination to be really clear about it is coming from. It's not the relationship with the actual spiritual practices that's problematic. It's how we are grubbing for money and how people who have no understanding, no concept, no relationship to these practices can manipulate and twist what they are for monetary gain.
1: Absolutely. Jessica, you could not have, I mean, I, I couldn't have said it better myself that, uh, and again, it comes back to the discernment of the consumer, mm-hmm. right? And of course, as teachers and as practitioners, it's really, it's our it's our duty to really provide the most authentic information we can understand, perceive, and uh, communicate that to the people that we work with. And then it's their their responsibility also to be discerning about what they consume. And I think as long as we all increase our discernment, and, and and add real authenticity. I think this exchange is going to become more real. The world will market whatever it wants to market. Mm. And that people will be passionate about I feel like there's a lot of misdirected passion. People, instead of being passionate about their own inner growth, people are passionate about all sorts of things that nothing can be done about. This was since the start of time, it will happen till we exist. But we all need to redirect our passion for our own inner growth mm. and you know our journey. And I feel like you know, the U.S. is full of misdirected passion, like all of it, like you give them a cause, whether they know it or not, they will go and, because we all have this pent up passion, you know, mm-hmm. so let's just bring it to ourselves and let's continuously work on ourselves and it, it'll give you so much more, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I mean, that's my dream. That would be my dream. More people doing yoga and, and doing it for the reason, just for personal enrichment and, and strengthening the connection to self and the connection to source. Like that would be my it dream. Happened.
1: Jessica, it's going to happen. I know with people like you, it's going to happen. It's it's like Buddha. Buddha, when he was meditating under the tree for years, never thought about like creating a movement. You know what? Yeah. Guess what? Guess what? 2000 years later, we, the movement still exists, right? We yeah. are still, we are still, we're still taken from that. So, and just by being who he was, he didn't, he probably never spoke to more than 500 people after enlightenment, right? People mm. came to listen to when he, but he didn't go about doing that in a way to create a propaganda. He had an mm-hmm. experience and he shared it with his authenticity. Mm. And he didn't care to change the world, but it changed anyways, because he cared to change himself. And I remind myself that every day, that mm. Buddha silently changed the world.
0: Mm, and mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I think that's just like the perfect place to end this conversation. Like on this high note of inspiration. Okay. We change the world by changing ourselves.
1: Yeah. we. It was lovely chatting with you, Jessica. This was a really good conversation. I was expecting to talk about all things are your weather and practices and routines. And we've uh, you know, we've really gone deeper into more important conversations and more important topics. So thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. And it's just, yeah. Such a joy. So thank you. I really, really enjoyed our conversation also. And um, I will put a link in the show notes to your website and your Instagram so people can go check you out and learn more about what you're doing and all the cool things you're up to.
1: Lovely, Jessica. And I wish you luck with the baby and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care, Jessica. Bye-bye. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye.